Wow. It's fantastic when there's a song that just leads into a message. Wow. Don't even need an introduction. But I do want to mention we have now started for this summer a series where we're studying through the book of Psalms. And I have the privilege of actually doing the first two Psalms. I did it last week, Psalm 1, which is kind of an introduction to the whole book of Psalms called the Psalter. And uh, today we're going to look at another one that's more towards the front, although it's not Psalm 2. But before we begin, I do want to mention that for the children, uh, New Life Kids, uh, Angela has prepared a guide that can go through. I see some of the, some of the children already have this, that's fine. And uh, if you find me a little too boring, you can, you can just do some drawing in there and so forth. Just don't draw me, okay, because that won't look too good, I would imagine. So anyway, uh, but feel free to fill that in. I also want to mention that we have a reading guide uh, that actually was prepared as well for you. And uh, that should be out on the table there as well. A reading guide where we read a psalm or we read all of the psalms through during the summer. And as a matter of fact, the psalm we're going to look at today, you've actually already read it if you're following along. It's, uh, you actually read it on Wednesday evening. And it's a psalm that we're going to look at uh, today. One of the main accusations leveled at Christians and Christianity today is that we devalue human beings. And that comes across uh, quite prominently in statements that are made by people that it seems that our press pick up real easily. Because they point to the attitudes of Christians, to those who, uh, to uh, the way that Christians treat those who practice abortion, non-traditional sexual behavior, and new gender norms and definitions. They also mention that the Bible and what it says about sin and about evil and the future consequences of those who practice ungodliness. What does Christianity say about the value of human life? One of the burning questions is, what does, how does God value human life? It's absolutely fundamental to our Christian faith. So that's what we're going to look at today, and it's actually found in one of the Psalms. Now, I'm so glad that it actually comes out in one of the Psalms. Why? Well, last week I mentioned that the Psalms, the reason, or one of the reasons I think God gave us the Psalms as part of our scriptures, is because the Psalms don't just talk about intellectual things. They get to our intellect through our heart. And the Psalms are full of emotion. And yet the Psalms have many things to teach us, but they teach us not only to intellectually assent to certain things, but how we should feel about it as we look at the psalmist and how the psalmist reacts. 
So I think it's a great value for us to study this question, what does God, how does God value human life? How does he value human life by looking at a psalm together? And we're going to go to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you certainly may do so. Uh, We actually, I'm going to put it on the screen. So I'm going to read it. We already, in song, have sung some of this song. And uh, so we're going to read it in its entirety. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Marvelous song. The first text and the last text are an exclamation of praise and worship to our God. But before we get there, and in some of your Bibles, you may actually have uh, a verse there that verse 1 may not be exactly like the one that I just read. And that's because there is what we call a title page, or there is a a superscription, is what they often call it. And there's a great discussion among scholars whether this is actually part of the original text. And most people don't believe it is part of the original text, but it, it has been in the writings for a long, long time and are therefore greatly respected. So let's look at the title page first. What does it say? It says it's a Psalm of David. Well, that's not a big surprise because David wrote most of the Psalms. So it's a Psalm of David. So just imagine David. Now, some of you know the story of David quite well. He started off as a shepherd boy looking after his his, uh, father's sheep. So he was out there wandering around. By the way, it's not like, uh, uh, you know, you've heard that I raise pigs. Uh, some of you have heard, I've got this little project, I raise pigs. Well, I'm, I'm with them about 10, 10 minutes a day, okay? So uh, I go out there, make sure that they're fed, make sure they have everything, and, and then leave. Well, that's not what a shepherd did at that time. The shepherd would often be with the sheep day and night, day and night, especially at certain times. So he was a shepherd boy, and then he became a mighty warrior. Remember, he, he, he won the battle over Goliath. He became a mighty warrior. 
he became well respected in Israel as a warrior. And then it became revealed that he was going to be the king. But of course, the present king, Saul, didn't like the fact that he was going to be the king. So the next scene that we see, if you were developing a story of David into different scenes, you would see David on the run as a fugitive because King Saul did not want him to have the throne. So you see him running here and there, hiding in caves. And then finally, the promise of being the king comes real. And he becomes the king and actually becomes the greatest king that Israel ever had during the time of what we call the monarchy, the time just before the exile. So that's David. That's the life of David. He's the author. He wrote it for the director of music. So we know that it's not only a psalm that has become a, a, a great prayer that people can express individually, but it will actually in many ways was set up to be a psalm that would be repeated by the whole nation. Maybe at, maybe at the time that they were before the temple. Or maybe later on, it certainly was later on, when there was no longer any temple for the children of Israel, they did it in the synagogue. They would repeat this psalm. But more than repeat it as a prayer, they would sing it. So that's why it was written quite likely for a choir director. According to Gittith, okay, those of you that like to do further study and would like to do a PhD study or whatever, you could take that word because scholars still don't know exactly what that word is. It's some sort of a notation that would be a musical notation, maybe back at that period of time for someone who was a choir director, or maybe it was a liturgical, that's the phrase a lot of people use, a liturgical term. In other words, how should you use this in corporate worship? We don't really know. We won't spend any time on that. Let's move to the first verse of the text. O Lord, or just Lord, this translation says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, the unfortunate part about it just being written like that is that the word Lord there is used twice, and it's two different words in Hebrew. In the first word, and if you remember last year, we actually went through the names of God. Do you remember? We went through the names and titles of God. And uh, one of the first ones and I had the opportunity of doing that, is going through a very unique name for God. Yahweh. It was called Yahweh. If you remember, sometimes it's been translated, particularly back during the King James Version days, to Jehovah, Yahweh. Yahweh was a very personal name of God. The word Elohim which is a word that's used in the Old Testament for God, it usually is a name that's used by a lot of people who are referring to a god or gods. They would use the word Elohim, and that's used in the Bible a lot. But Yahweh, that's reserved only for the God of Israel. So David calls out, first of all, Yahweh. And then he says, our Lord. That other word, Lord, 
is in most versions just the first letter is capitalized, whether the, whereas the first Lord, all letters were capitalized. And that one means master. He's sovereign. And notice he says, our Lord. Personalizes it. It's not the Lord, it's our Lord. So he starts off in this worship of his Lord, Yahweh. How majestic is your name in all the earth? That word majesty, we sing that a whole lot, majesty. It means how excellent, how glorious. It actually, the root word there, it's really strange. The root word means wide, lofty. And so he's He's trying to be very artistic in his expression of who God is. God is lofty. He's wide. He's majestic. That's why I believe, you know, now we have the king, the king of England and the king of the commonwealth, our king. When he has his ceremony of being crowned, he's dressed in this glorious robe. That's the picture majesty, majesty. How majestic is your name? Back then, a name always represented the individual. We don't often give a lot of importance to names, but back then, so what he's really saying is not just how majestic is your name, how glorious is your name. He's saying, how glorious are you in all the earth? I marvel at that. In all the earth. How much of the earth did David see? A lot less than you and I, for the most part. We travel all over the world now. But David just grasps, and maybe God gave him an insight that he normally they wouldn't see. How majestic in all the earth. And you know what? Down through the centuries, it's actually three centuries later now, 3,000 years later, we can still say the same thing, even though we know a lot more about the earth. How majestic is your name in all the earth? I've kind of wondered. I wonder how he wrote this psalm. Now, he may have written this psalm a lot later in his life. He may have already been a king when he wrote it, but I would think he would never forget those days when he was out tending the sheep. And of course, that meant being out there overnight. And he would look up and see the stars and see all the brilliance of the stars and the moon. And it would, that's what led him to burst out. How majestic is your name? That's what he experienced in everything that he experienced. It all pointed to the majesty and the glory of God. He moves on to explain why he feels this. That's the next verse. Let's look at verse 2. He says, you've set your glory in the heavens. Well, that kind of fits in with what he's just said because the word glory could also fit in with the word majesty. It's not exactly the same word in Hebrew, but it could be the connotation of what he's saying. He looks up there and he sees all of these 
magical things. And back then they had a lot less artificial light on earth, so I imagine it was even brighter. I've had the opportunity, some of you have the opportunity to go up to the top of a mountain. And uh, I've had this a number of times when I was in France and the French Alps, because we have a camp up there. I remember the last time I was there, it was about one o'clock in the morning and just looking up. And it was almost as though you could touch them. They seemed to be so close and so bright. And I could just imagine that that led him to say, you've put your glory up there, Lord, in the heavens. Then he goes on to give another interesting reason why he believes he should be glorified. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And it seems like what he's doing here is he's looking to earth now. He's bringing his eyes back to earth and he's just evaluating the situation and he's saying, you know what? Through the praise, the acknowledgement of children and infants. Now, why would he talk about children and infants? I really think that what he's trying to do is to draw a contrast. What's the contrast? Children and infants, enemies, the foe, the avenger. Some of them very powerful, and he himself experienced some very powerful foes, David did. And he says, you know what? God, you're so marvelous because you take ones who we regard as weak and so dependent, and you take their praise and you use it as a stronghold against those who shake their fist against you and against us. Our God is in charge, not only of the universe, he's in charge of what goes on here. And so that's why the psalmist breaks out in praise. Because of the glory displayed in the heavens and because of the glory of what he does here on earth, he takes that which seems so weak and dependent. And he uses it because of the way they respond to him in praise and he uses it as a stronghold against those who seem to be the most powerful. But then David moves on in the next verse to ask a question. And this is the fundamental question. So let's go to the next verse. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. So in the midst of this display of God's glory in the heavens, in the midst of thinking of how God establishes his name on earth, he comes to the fundamental question. Why would you consider us? I look at what you have done with your fingers. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't use hands here. He talks about fingers as though it's intricate. That, that all that finite little workings that happen, that we're discovering day by day by mankind is still discovering just, just how complex our life is. And God puts it all together. 
And he says, when I think of all that, the great God of the universe, who's doing these magnificent things, even discovering what's going on in the universe, why on earth would you even give attention to us? Why would you give the time of day for us? We're just a little speck on this earth. Well, he understood specifically what the Bible says. We are so small compared to the great work of creating the universe. And, uh, but then he goes on to explain why he considers it to be a dilemma. He's, uh, he basically makes a reference to the fact that God cares and concerns for us whom he has created. So verse 5, the next verse, he goes on to say, we can flip to the next. You have made them, and he's referring to mankind, a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned them with glory and honor. Who are the angels? Well, this is the moment maybe to give a little overview. They are divinely created, so they're created beings as well. They aren't found in Genesis 1 and 2, except maybe Im implicated a little bit there, but there's no direct reference to the creation of uh, angels in Genesis 1 and 2. But we know that they are created. They're created beings. They're spiritual beings. What I mean by that is by nature, they don't have physical bodies. Now, they can appear with physical bodies because we find on numerous occasions angels have appeared to people in physical bodies. But by nature, they don't have a physical body. And they have a role of worshiping God. In fact, there's some angels up there who are worshiping God all the time. Worshiping God all the time. And there are some angels who serve God. They're messengers for God. They deliver messages to men, whatever, different things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 actually says that, you know, angels are ministering spirits to us. So they actually minister to us. Yeah, they may deliver a message. They may be actually protecting us. They may be doing a number of things that we're not even aware of because we can't see them in operation. That's what angels are doing. And the first thing he says about our position is that we are placed a little lower than angels. We're doing a little lower than angels. But, he goes on to say, and crowned them with glory and honor. Now, I hope you can understand the word crown there. That's, that's important. Because who receives a crown? Those that are honored. Those that are rewarded something. Now, it's not so much that we got a reward, but he actually has crowned mankind. There's a sense in which we need to see ourselves as being crowned by the Almighty God. Well, that really directs us to go back and read specifically what it says in the book of Genesis concerning God when he decided to create mankind. So let me just review. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, 
26 to 27. I'll just read it for you here. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. By the way, that's another one. We don't have time to deal with that today. The image of God. You're created in the image of God. I feel I'm created in the image of my father and my mother, kind of a combination together. I can see a little bit of both in me, but I'm actually created in the image of Yahweh, the God of the universe. That's what it says. So that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So what God did here in Genesis chapter 1 is he shared, no, is that a good word, shared? He delegated part of his overall rule of the universe. He has delegated some of that managing, caring for, looking over to the earth. He's given it to us. He's delegated it to us. Then it goes on to say in verse 28, so God created mankind. Now, we might want to change that and say humankind, but I think we know mankind means male and female. In his own image, he goes on to say, in the image of God, he created them, okay? Male and female, women and men. He created them in his own image. So clearly we can see right from the time when it was decided that God said, we're going to do creation, he created man with that kind of position and then with that kind of purpose, that purpose as well. So we are crowned with glory and honor, but we are also stewards of this created world. Now, a steward is not an owner of something. A steward is someone who has been delegated the responsibility of looking after someone else's owner, uh, uh, what they own, something that is possessed by somebody else. So it's very clear, God owns the universe, God owns the earth, it's his, but he has delegated the responsibility of looking after it <clears throat> to us. Again, that's an example of just how valuable God looks at human beings. I personally feel there should be no people on earth more concerned about how we are handling the condition of this earth as followers of our God. There's no place in the Christian view for the idea, well, let's just use the world for our own benefit because one day God's going to destroy it anyway and he will redo it with a new heaven and new earth. I've heard that actually from some people. I think they're, doing, they're saying it mostly in jest, at least I hope they were, uh, because I don't think that's exactly the teaching of scripture as well. Yeah, in the future, God is going to redo everything and make everything new. But God didn't say, okay, because of that, just go ahead and wreck the whole thing. Just like uh, if you were renting a place and you were forced to leave, and as some people do, they just wreck the place when they leave. That's not what God is asking 
us to do. So we have clearly a responsibility. We have a position, an honored position, and a clear responsibility that's involved as well. But we got a problem. It's never worked out quite like it should. And that's because in the midst of it all, we have to say, sin has entered into this world, and sin has entered into mankind. And as a result of that, God has gone even further to say, but I've got a solution. And to do that, we are going to go now to the New Testament. And I am not sure if you're aware of the fact, but this psalm is actually, part of this psalm is actually quoted in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. So we're going to turn there now to Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to read what it says in Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. Now, it's talking about Jesus here. As a matter of fact, it's in a context where, where the book of Hebrews, and those of you that studied that under Jody Lee uh, will remember it clearly. Uh, the book of Hebrews, the writer is trying to say, Jesus is superior to everything. And it's in the context here, he's talking about Jesus being superior to angels. But this is what it says about Jesus. You can see how... Psalm 8 fits in really well. It is not to angels that he has submitted, subjected the world to come. God didn't turn to angels and say, okay, I'm going to give you the responsibility of the world to come. He didn't do that to angels about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. Interesting, he uses that, where someone has testified. We know where it is. It's Psalm 8. It's David. Here's what it says. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Or the son of man that you care for them? Next verse, or just cross it over there. You made them a little lower than the angels, and you crowned them with glory and honor. There he quotes that verse. Now he's going to talk about Jesus. And put everything under their feet. And notice what he says. And in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Okay, that's what Psalm 8 was saying. But then he says this, yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. We're, yeah, we're likely not doing a real good job at our responsibility, and things are a little out of control, and that's because the world itself is out of whack, not just us. But Jesus has come, and he's going to change it all. Let's move on. But we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. How was he made lower than the angels? After all, he was the one that created the angels. He was the great God over the angels. He was made lower than the angels for a little while when he became man. Fully God, fully man now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And this points clearly, this points clearly to the fact that Jesus came to make Psalm 
create a reality. And it's happened already. Jesus came. He died on the cross. He dealt with sin. He has dealt with death. He has dealt with the power of sin and death. The enemy, the evil one, the angels that fell. As a matter of fact, it says in Scripture that the angels are looking at this plan of salvation that God has offered you and me, and they're looking at it in wonder. You know why? Angels are not offered the same salvation. There's no salvation for angels. Those that fell, they're condemned forever. Those that are staying firm, they worship, serve God in total obedience. But the angels look at these guys also rebelled against you and you have provided salvation for them. That is unbelievable. It sure is. But why? He cares that much for you and I. We are created in his image. We are crowned with glory and honor. And although we're tainted by rebellion and sin and independence and opposition to him, Christ gave his life that we might be restored to be who we were created to be. And not only that, the Bible says one day he's, going to, he's even going to deal with the curse that has come on the earth. And one day, Psalm 8 will be a living reality. But that doesn't change the fact that God does not value human beings as very important. He has strong, he has a strong high view of mankind. Not because of what we've done, but because we are created in his image and for a purpose, as stewards to serve him well. It's interesting that this psalm actually points to Jesus because Jesus is the one who's going to make it right. And he's already started to do it in our hearts. Praise God. Thank you for his grace. Thank him for his grace. But one day, it's going to be restored to what he intended right from the beginning. So what happens? The last verse. Oh, Yahweh. Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What a wonderful God we have. So what does that mean for us today? How do the truths of this psalm affect us? First of all, I ask you, are you moved to worship and to praise our God because of his deep compassion and affection for us? Are we moved and, and ready to reflect God's deep affection for human beings because he's done that for us as well? How do we deal with people who have different religious beliefs than us? Different values, different convictions, exhibit different behaviors, even behaviors that 
we see scripturally are just not in line with what God wants. What about those in the population who are, who are looked at as useless, a burden on society, objects rather than human beings? How do we react to these people around us? I trust that this psalm will not only bring us to our knees in praising God for who he is and what he's done for us, but it will also affect our understanding as to how he wants us to treat others around us. Do we see them as God sees them? So, my challenge for you today is, do you see yourself as God sees you? There may be some of you here who struggle over that because you experience, have experienced certain things or maybe you're presently experiencing certain things that is really shaping the way you look at yourself. I, I'm not saying that you need to somehow change things and say, no, no, I'm, I'm, I, I'm good because I just need to say I'm good. No, focus on what God sees you as. It's important. And my challenge to you is to reflect on that. Spend time on that scripturally. Secondly, what about those around us? Do we see them as Christ sees them? Do, do we see them as God sees them? God's desire for people is so strong it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, that God is actually waiting patiently for people to come to himself. He loves people that much. And I trust that that will affect us as we go and live out this life as well. Oh, we can't do it on our own. That's why Christ came. That's why Hebrews emphasizes how important it is for Christ who's come to set it right. So my challenge to you is, where do you stand before Jesus? And then secondly, will you allow the thinking and the mindset of Jesus concerning those who live around us to shape us as we live this day? So, our society would say, we don't care about people. Is that true? The proof is in the pudding. How we live it. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much. First of all, for who you are. I mean, that's what the psalmist praised you for. What a wonderful plan that you somehow have taken us and consider us to be the crown of your creation created in your own image. And oh God, we thank you for giving us this psalm that helps us to see who we are in your eyes so that we can turn around and worship you for who you are. Thank you, Father, for who you are, and thank you for what you've done for us.
and continue to do because you love us. In the name of Jesus, who made it all possible, we pray this. Amen.